0: The Individual Investor Show. You want it all, don't you? you hear one thing, they all need money. Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it.
1: Hello and welcome to the Individual Investor Show. My name is Jennifer Shearer, your host for this evening. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you all had a wonderful week. So according to a recent study conducted by the BMO, Real Financial Progress Index, over one quarter of all Americans plan to delay their retirement due to inflation. Additionally, 60 percent of people living in the United States who are between the ages of 18 to 34 said that they had to pull back on their saving contributions for retirement to make up for rising costs of necessities. So not only has inflation impacted how often we drive, what we buy at the grocery store, as well as overall home ownership, it's also hitting some people's investments pretty hard. However, before you panic about your retirement portfolio, there may be a smart way to adjust as well as protect from inflation by utilizing RMDs. Tonight's event is the individual investor show the shocking impacts of inflation on retirement. In this episode, we spent some time talking with Dr. Craig Israelson about his latest article in the June 2022 issue of the AAII Journal, Dealing with Inflation in a Retirement Portfolio. Israelson discusses how required minimum distributions, also known as RMDs, are built-in inflation adjusters that allow retirees to be more cautious in their asset allocation if they need to. We also discussed the impacts of inflation as well as what looking at the past 96 years of historical data can actually tell us about what to expect. But before we jump in, I do want to preface tonight's presentation by reminding our viewers that AAII is a nonprofit educational group and is not a financial advisor and thus is not able to give personal advice. Every investor is different. That's why our goal with each broadcast and article is to educate you on how to make better financial decisions. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our presentation you begin your article in the beginning. So with going over like some key background information regarding historical infl- inflation. So I just wanted, you know, we have, you have such a nice table up there and everything. And I wanted to just kind of go into, you know what were your findings and what kinds of things do you think investors should take away from that from looking at historical information about inflation?
0: Um, so it tends to inflation,
2: one of the easiest things to to, Uh, end up on the radar of the CPI as energy. And so the cycles we see are, um, that graph right there. Whoa, doesn't wanna look that anyway, sorry about that. I thought it would show up, but it's that looks like sort of a a skyline, you know, a big city skyline. And you've got uh, periods of time where either World War II was the driver of inflation, or the uh, energy um, situation in the 1970s, and uh, with OPEC kind of squeezing the rest of the world on energy, uh, I remember being in gas lines as a kid in California. We can only get gas on alternate days, so. That's a lot of what we're seeing right now is just these cycles in energy and oil just um, pun intended, it just trickles down in so many ways. Uh, anything made of plastic, you no, know, that's a petroleum derivative. Um, anything that has to be transported pretty much is affected by the price of oil. so um, whether or not that impetus, you know that that source of our current inflation, whether or not that stays, I think we have another little weird quirk just in terms of the post COVID supply chain um, sluggishness and that, uh, I don't see how we can uh, remove that from the overall equation. And, you know, the market's an auction and the highest bidder gets stuff. and if there's not as much stuff as there was three years ago, then bidders bid it up. I mean, if you just think about the world as a big auction, then that's pretty much how a lot of this current inflation is um, it's just demand pull. And there's been a supply um, reduction. So I guess to answer your question, you know, what do we learn? Um, we learn what we've always known. <laughs> but we have to relearn it, which is things going cycles. And it, it's been pleasant over the last 20 years to live in a very low inflationary environment, which during that time, commodities as an asset class, has just languished. Um, and I don't know how many times I've written about that. And I keep suggesting sort of the obvious, which is there's a reason commodities have languished because commodities are really the source of inflation. Because the primary commodity is oil, and if and if oil is relatively well behaved, then we don't have a lot of inflation. And when oil gets kind of misbehaves, then we have inflation. And so, um, commodities as an asset class has done really well lately, but that's after oh gosh, you know, ten years of really being stinky. So um, my big takeaway is that while it's tempting to always ride the fastest horse, that horse is going to run out of energy. There's going to have to be another horse in your portfolio and another horse and another horse. And so just, you know, as obvious as it sounds, we just have to stay diversified. Even when stuff isn't, the stuff, you know, in our portfolio, some of it's not doing well. This ticker, that ticker. Okay,
0: um, Great. If everything was doing
2: well, then you don't have a uncorrelated portfolio. It was very highly correlated. and so and so once that thing, whatever that thing is, goes down, they all go down. if they're all highly correlated. So um, a low-correlation portfolio is surprisingly challenging to endure because we tend to look at the best performing component and say, "ooh, I wish I had all that." And then some people pile on and they just go to emerging markets or real estate or whatever's hot. And then and then when it's not hot, they don't I mean, they've sort of you know built they're on a it's it's a one pony show, you know, and and so staying in a diversified portfolio is harder than it sounds and so for people who've stayed with commodities you know they haven't had a very great experience until lately and now they have a piece of their portfolio that's really doing well and the whole reason that's relevant um, is that for a person who's retired they have to make withdrawals every year if they're over the age of 72 and that's that's kind of why i focused on the rmd in the article is because You don't have a choice. You have to make withdrawals. And so this isn't the same scenario. If you're 50 years old and retired, let's say you retired early in life, you don't have to make withdrawals. Nobody's forcing you. But then you turn 72 and you have to make a withdrawal. Well, that means you need a variety of buckets to take money out of, because you have to make a withdrawal. And if all of your buckets are highly correlated and they're all down, then you're being forced to take a withdrawal from a down bucket and we don't wanna do that. So the I guess the biggest single takeaway is that we've, we really need to be more diversified in retirement than we perhaps thought. And we have to be okay with some of the components that aren't behaving as we'd like them to. Let it let it play out. We might need them in three years, because in three years that'll be the best performing bucket, and that's where we'll take the RMB out of. That's that's to me one of the biggest takeaways.
1: You know, I think we we talked about in our last interview even that you know the yeah the importance of diversification, especially you know when you're because we talked about funds and you know how it's really hard or it's, it's some people aren't realizing that they have the right diversification or that they, you know, they have like, you know, they say, Oh, I have a lot of, you know, different ETFs. And I have a lot of mutual funds and they're all different in, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, holdings and things like that, but they don't actually look inside the funds to make sure that they're truly diversified. And I remember that that was a big takeaway that I was, uh, you know, that I think a lot of members need to check as well when they're in retirement as well. So <laughs> they need to remember that. So that's, and, um, You know, I did want to mention, you know, so you mentioned in the article that your focus and the overall goal was to discuss the ability to have withdrawals that maintain purchasing power, which meets or exceeds the rate of inflation. So I just wanted if you could expand a little on this point and give us a little background of why, uh, of how you can maintain that purchasing power um, for investors who are either approaching retirement or already in.
2: Yeah. So um, think of it this way the arch enemy. Of a bond a traditional bond or a bond fund is inflation that's the arch enemy that's the green goblin you know for batman and so bonds traditional bonds you know not not treasury inflation protected not tips just a traditional bond like the aggregate bond index that has no way of responding to inflation and that's why it's um that's why we had, in 1997 or the US government invented dips following the example of the British they'd already been doing that so we finally realized that gee we should make it an inflation sensitive you know fixed income device so um, a retiree that's largely in bonds in an inflationary environment is as a bad combination so Equities think of an equity as um, a way of uh, creating you know a, a connection to a company you have ownership in the company, and that company can respond to inflation by raising prices. So a, a stock or the value of a company is a different mechanism than a bond, which is basically you loaning money to a company and so stocks have a lot better track record against the erosive effects of inflation than bonds do. And so the the, the whole approach to investing tends to overweight equities anyway. You know, the 6040 portfolio is called balanced. Really? Balanced? Wouldn't 5050 be balanced? But Sixty forty is called balanced, and the sixty is in the equity, and the forty is in the bond. And so there's there's always been this this nod or this um, we just acknowledge that we, you know to to be balanced or stable we need probably more stocks and bonds if we're thinking long term. And so that. Uh, that plays out when we start to test portfolios over the last century. And that's basically what I did, it was 96 years, but um, go ahead and test it, test it in, test these models. And the models basically differ simply by how much equity exposure you have, 100% equity, 80% equity, 60, 40, 20, down to zero equity and pull money out using the RMD uh, methodology, and see how often the withdrawals uh, are able to keep pace with inflation, and using actual CPI year to year to year, you know, not averages, not average CPI over rolling 25 year periods, but I'm looking at the actual CPI every single year, uh, and that has to match up with what your R&D um, was, and so. Basically, the first withdrawal sets a dollar amount. Then I start, then I look at the CPI and say, okay, CPI, inflate that first RMD by whatever the, the CPI rate was. And that sets in motion then. That's how much the RMD has to be the next year to keep pace with inflation. So everything starts out from the first RMD withdrawal. Then I inflate it then I compare what the actual withdrawal was from the portfolio based on the portfolio's return. And that's how I'm measuring, is it keeping pace with inflation? So there's, so, you know, there's thousands of calculations going on. Thank goodness this for Excel and the, the most dramatic observation is, wow, you know, you've, you've either got to have quite a bit of equity if you're, using a, the 4% rule, like you need probably 70% equity if you're using the 4% rule. Um, and that's, um, did I just say 60 or 40% Oh, I said 70, but let's start it this way. If, if you have 40% equity in a retirement portfolio and you're pulling money out based on the RMD, 40% equity, your RMD withdrawal is gonna keep pace with inflation about 90% of the time because the RMD is escalating. And that's, as I mentioned in the article, that's sort of a built-in inflation adjuster, the, the escalating nature of the RMD. Alternatively, if you're just taking out 4%, which you can if you want out of say a Roth IRA, you know, a Roth IRA doesn't, doesn't, isn't governed by the RMD. So if you have um, 40% equity in a portfolio and you're taking out money at 4% a year, 4% of the balance, you're gonna keep pace with inflation about 61% of the time. So think of it as 90%. So you have 40% equity, RMD, 90% of the time, you're gonna keep pace with inflation, 40%, equity 4% rule about 60% of the time. So the the simple way to think of it is that if you are taking money out via the RMD, you can dial down if you want the equity exposure in your portfolio. So either your equity has to be high, if you're using a 4% rule, to keep pace with inflation, more than half the time, or you have to keep withdrawing more each year. That's the RMD. In which case you can lower, something has to be high. You do, your, your, your withdrawal rate has to increase to, to account for inflation. And if, you're, if your withdrawal rate is static, then your equity has to increase. So you have two levers. Either you increase the equity exposure using a 4%, or if the, or, the RMD, you raise the RM, you know, the withdrawal rate, which the RMD automatically does, and that allows you to lower the equity exposure a little bit. And so what's what's interesting is a thought that probably would never occur to most of us would be why don't I just use the RMD as my withdrawal rate out of an account that doesn't even require the RMD if my primary goal is to keep pace with inflation. The RMD turns out to be a wonderful guideline or a methodology to keep pace with inflation. So if, if that's not the primary goal, like we talked at the first, you know, if, if you don't feel like you're really all that exposed to inflation, then don't worry about inflation. But if you are, then we have two mechanisms, either more equity, or use a more aggressive withdrawal rate strategy, which is the RMD.
1: So you really have to you have to really think about your personal what 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 your stance is right now, how your you know your individual um, you know situation is before you decide whether not to use the RMD or you know um, increase your equity. So you know, so if, you know a lot of people I think are battling with the four percent rule and and wondering you know is there does inflation change this is 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 this still a strategy that works really well? I know you mentioned that, you know, 61% of the time, you know, it's it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, but is there is there a lot, is there critiques or do you have your own critiques on the 4% rule?
2: Um, yeah, the 4% rule, you know, Bill Bangan introduced that back in the 70s in the Journal of Financial Planning. And
0: the 4% rule, presupposes that we have a portfolio
2: that has a reasonable amount of equity. So if a person has a 100% cash portfolio, the 4% rule is not going to protect us against inflation hardly ever. So that's that's one of the interesting things about the 4% rule is that it often is not a discussion about the 4% rule is not accompanied by a discussion about the asset allocation of the portfolio. Those two have to be discussed simultaneously. And so if there's some sort of unwritten assumption that when we're talking the 4% rule, we're talking 60-40 portfolio, 60 equity, 40 bonds, oh, okay, well, if under that caveat, then the 4% rule is, the the beauty of it is just the elegance, you know, it's whatever the balance is, at the end of each year, take out 4%. And if if the portfolio had a crappy year, like uh, 2008, then maybe you skip a year if you can. Um, Because by the way, you know, if you're using a 4% rule, that sort of implies that you're not using the RMD so you actually have a choice uh, whereas the rmd you can't just say you know what i'm going to skip this year um, and i think uncle sam will you know understand and then you realize he won't understand um, and and during covid you know we had that year where people could take a year off of the rmd and that was nice um, but we can't count on that and so the four percent rule there's nothing wrong with it Um, but if it's an all bond or an all cash portfolio, and you have a goal to keep pace with inflation, then you have a mismatch. And, and so that's, that's what I guess I would invite all of us to consider is that, um, you know, if we decide we want to use a 4% rule, that's going to kind of, um, inform us as to what our asset allocation needs to be, if, and this, and this is a big if, if keeping pace with inflation is a primary goal. Then, and that's kind of how the article concludes, is that our, or the method by which we're withdrawing money is actually giving us information about what the asset allocation needs to be. And I think that's approached often the other way. I think people decide on their asset allocation, and then they make their withdrawal as if, you know, it's a linear decision, you know, from asset allocation to withdrawal rate to to how much money they took out, as if there's no other way to think about this. And I think of it as kind of a circular flow of information, uh, or it could be linear, but the starting point is the withdrawal rate. And probably what is your objective when you make that withdrawal? What's the objective of that withdrawal? Is it to simply meet your needs? Because you're, you're not really all that affected by inflation? Um, and you have very modest needs? Okay, then maybe inflation is not even part of the the uh, process of you know how you choose to withdraw money. And so this whole article is really um in one way it's kind of one-dimensional because it places a lot of emphasis on inflation as being the primary monster you're trying to slay as a retiree and and i totally under get it you know and understand that that may not be the monster you're trying to slay great then you know part of the article is maybe irrelevant to you um but i would be surprised if if people said, well, inflation's irrelevant to me, that would be surprising. Uh, and so, so I think to some extent, we have to oh, at, at least consider, maybe not that we're trying to keep up with inflation, but let's say we're, we're wanting our income each year in retirement to be 2% higher than it was the prior year. Okay, then what we're basically saying is that I am responding to a world that I believe is introducing me to um, a 2% inflation existence. You know, if you want a 2% COLA, the whole reason for that is that you're either responding to 2% inflation or you simply want to spend more money. So, um, and this article didn't, we didn't, and this one go in the direction of a cola you know cost of living adjustments um but a cola is just kind of a different way of saying i think there's inflation out there
1: and you know you, t- you talk about you know in the article you have a lot of uh you know you show a table that you know if you're moderately conservative conservative aggressive so you know that takes into account you know your own risk tolerance but so how do, how do you know or how do how do people know uh how much to increase their RMD withdrawals if um, they're not planning to have um, more equity or to increase their equity?
0: That's a good question. So if they're unwilling,
2: if, they're un- if a person's unwilling to adjust the equity, they're just determined to be 20, 80, let's say 20% equity and that's what they're comfortable with. I respect that. Um, the RMD, Starts out at 3.65% at age 72. I'm just—I don't have these memorized, thankfully. That would be really sick and wrong. Um, At age 80, the RMD is just under 5%. At 85, it's six and a quarter percent. So the RMD is pretty well. laid out in front of us, well, it was totally laid out. We know exactly what it is. And if a person said, well, I am unwilling to go beyond 20% equity. Okay, well, based on the research, over the last almost 100 years, if you're at 20% equity, then your RMD withdrawals kept pace with inflation about 82% of the time. And they say, oh, that's fine with me. I would say, wow, that's fine with me too. I mean, that's a pretty impressive number. You know, you're 20% equity and you're still keeping pace with inflation over just a tad over 80% of the time. And they're saying, I think rightfully so. Yeah, you're using CPI inflation in this research, CPI-based inflation. I don't think I'm exposed to CPI-based inflation. You know, I don't drive that much. I'm not buying a house, and you know, and I'm not buying much of anything, frankly. Then I would say I they're right, you know, they're just not that exposed. So, uh, and and that's uh if that's what you're getting at, that's a really good question because a person has to decide, um, you know, if they want their withdrawals to keep pace with inflation, based on research that was based on CPI inflation. That would be a tacit acknowledgement that they still believe that they're exposed to CPI based inflation. That whatever they're doing, however they're spending money, that they're being that they need to um, keep pace with that. And i I personally believe for myself that right now in my life, I'm not that affected. The, the main thing that that I see, that we are affected in, in a meaningful way is some food items and gasoline. Um, and travel to a little bit of extent, you know, flight costs are a little bit higher. So I think that's one of the, the sort of the hidden beauties of the r And I know people hate the RMD because But it's really because they're forced. It has really little to do with the methodology of the RMD. It's just being forced, uh, like a mask, you know. Maybe they're fine with a mask, but don't tell me to wear a mask, you know, kind of idea. And so if a person were to employ the RMD either by force, they have to, or by choice, in the in all the aspects, all the different accounts of their overall retirement portfolio. And they say, you know what? I just kind of want a no brainer way of keeping pace with inflation. Oh, then use the RMD. And if you are a fairly conservative investor, then if you're willing to go to say 40% equity, which I think people would be inclined to do in as much as we're at the bottom of the interest rate cycle, And interest rates will have to be going up, which means fixed income gets hammered in that respect, you know, as well. I don't think it's a stretch for a person to go to a 40% equity. Now you're keeping pace with inflation about 92% of the time. So, whatever your objectives are, what that basically is saying is you're getting a cola. If you use the RMD, you're getting a pretty healthy cola. And whether that cola is offsetting inflation. Or whether that cola for you, those increased dollars that you're withdrawing, allows you to make more gifts to grandkids, you know, whatever your source of inflation, whether it's actual inflation or lifestyle things you want to be able to do with your money, you're doing it. If we use inflation, CPI inflation as the basic metric, then, and RMD is the withdrawal. Then a 40% equity position, or think of it this way, 50%, you're half equity, half fixed income. You got it nailed.
1: Or for, uh, you know, people who are just approaching retirement within the next year or in the next couple years, do you have any advice for them that, you know, so that, because I know, you know, they may, before reading your article, they, you know, they may be freaking out, they may be worried that, you know, they're, their portfolios aren't going to weather the storm, you know. They're not going to weather inflation. So, what 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 did, what did like lasting advice would you give them if you know retirement is really coming up fast and they have to plan?
2: Um, I would say diversify sooner rather than later, so that you begin to understand what it feels like to be diversified, and it's not as pleasant as you think. There there is this notion that um diversification well diversification makes sense cognitively but experientially our experience is um not there's cognition and there's experience and there's a gap between them and so uh yeah, um bless your heart you're too young to remember this movie line but um there's a movie called love story and this one, the guy says to the girl love means you never have to say you're sorry and it was ryan o'neill and Allie mcgraw as i recall well so why would i bring that up well because diversification means you always have to say you're sorry um and by that, I mean a diversified portfolio, let's say it has 10 different mutual funds, 10 different asset classes, and the mutual funds really are different. You know, Large US stock, small cap US stock, um, non-US stock, emerging, real estate, commodities, and so forth. Okay, they, And they actually do behave somewhat differently. At the end of every quarter, end of every year, you look at those 10 tickers, how many winners do you have? One, you have one winner and nine losers. Well, losers, really? Like, one fund had a 25% return. One fund had a 20% return. You're calling a 20% returning fund a loser? Well, yeah, it wasn't 25. That is one of the problems of diversification is that you have all these components, and they can't all be the winner every year. And so what do you do? Do you keep the losers? Well, that that's sort of like, you know, you have a bunch of of um kids, you know, and one child is a real stinker this day. I mean, what do you just, you know, ship them off to boarding school? Uh, they were just having a bad day, you know, give them a break. And and so there has to be a learning curve, an experiential learning curve of what it feels like to endure a diversified portfolio. And we just don't talk about that. I mean, we talk about it like it's the real panacea and this solves everything. No, it doesn't uh, because we're not patient. And, And so that's why we need experience with it. We need experience of how maybe we're patient in other areas of our life and then we're not patient with this, Well, then we need more experience with this, we can develop that patience. It just doesn't come naturally uh, for most of us. And so, if a person has five years before they retire, and they're in, you know, maybe they're in a really high level of equity, then I would say um, at least diversify that equity. You start to get that in the saddle experience of what it feels like to be patient with some of these funds that weren't the best performer. And
0: um,
2: it's it just, you know, I guess there's probably some people that maybe don't need to do what I'm saying. They just naturally get it. Um, but I have just observed myself. I've observed others and I'm not as patient as I preach and and I know better, you know, but sometimes I don't do better uh, because I guess if we were gonna add, let me say it this way, this is a weird way of saying it. I try to specialize in weird. Um, One of the most important asset classes you can add to a portfolio is your patience. Think of patients as an asset class. And if we can always have that asset class of patients in the portfolio, our portfolio will do a lot better. And then with multi-asset investing, diversified investing, then comes what sounds easy on paper is to rebalance. So you rebalance among the buckets and keep them, keep them kind of where you wanted them to be as far as their allocations. Well, that means literally at the end of a year, you need to take money out of your best performer and put it into your worst performers. That's not easy. That takes behavioral practice because it takes courage to do that. And it might take five or six years of doing that before we finally see, I mean, rebalancing, you don't see the fruit of that right away. Uh, not even close I mean it could take eight to 10 years to see the fruit of rebalance and so if people think that rebalancing is sort of like going out and picking cherries and like when when can I eat them um now you know like you can eat some right now if you want no no no. the, the fruit of rebalancing is no those cherries have been in a bottle on a shelf in the storage room for eight years and you're finally going to eat them then so Again, that's the behavioral side of it that um, we just, I don't know of any way to that fruit other than the hard path of speaking it and then doing it and then doing it again and then doing it again. Um, Kind of like personal hygiene, you know, you can't talk your way into personal hygiene. You got to do it. So. That, that's kind of maybe an unexpected answer, but um, you know we often talk about, well, you know, adjust that portfolio in certain ways as you approach retirement from strictly a portfolio standpoint, generally the idea that we're reducing the risk a little bit of the portfolio. Um, and that's not
0: incorrect. but but I think there's I think there's some
2: other Aspects of that that we fail to consider um, because we've never owned certain asset classes. If we've been largely equity, we've never owned some other stuff, and we don't have the kind of experience, you know, with its behavior pattern. So, you know, if if a person wants to, um, well, this is the simplest way to think about it. Number one, you know, get experience with what diversification feels like, and then get experience, and this is a super hard one, in not checking the portfolio quite so often. And that is really, really hard. Um, And for people that can check it and not react to it, good on you, you know, you're rare. But if you're checking it and then being frazzled by it, then I would say, oh, check it less often. Um, you know, play with your grandkids more or go golf more or do your church stuff or, you know, whatever it is. And um, I mean, I heard a mutual fund manager say that, I don't know, 25 years ago. And it was just, I thought the smartest thing I've ever heard. And he said, if you want to take volatility out of your portfolio, simply check it less often. That, I mean, I can't improve on that. That's just, that's just wisdom. But it, it takes, it takes maybe a number of years of, of doing the opposite to finally convince ourselves of the wisdom of that. We probably have to do it wrong before we can do it right and gain our own sort of personal commitment or witness, you know, or whatever, whatever it is personal understanding of the the wisdom of that.
1: And people might be, you know, experiencing that right now, even, you know, especially with all the market volatility, they might be checking it and then realizing they shouldn't really have checked it.
2: (laughs) Yep. Particularly if you, if you, if you know that you're a long-term investor and you, and you say that to people, yeah, yeah, I'm a long-term investor and, you know, um, but then we, sort of like we say yeah i use a crock pot all the time and we go home and we use the microwave for every meal you know we like we talk like we're a crock potter but we're actually a microwaver you know
1: i can see that no that's true that that's good advice i I think i think a lot of times you know especially when you're in you're approaching retirement you're worried and you're nervous about what's going to happen and you're probably checking it way too often than you should be so yeah Uh, You know, I wanted to ask, you know, we covered a lot of topics in the article, but was there anything that you wanted to highlight from the article that we didn't talk about already?
0: Um, I guess just the the, um,
2: unpopular thing to say, but the the RMD is not our enemy. And I mean, because you have to withdraw that, but you don't have to spend it right. You can just put it in a savings account. You can gift it to others. I mean, you know, we just don't like being forced to have pulled that money out and it's now out of that tax deferred environment. I, I, I understand that. I, I agree that that's, we're just kind of honorary. We don't like to be told, but that's the deal. And why don't we get over that, honoriness, about the R and and then look at the mechanics of the R and D and uh, the logic behind it. It wasn't just slapped together, you know. I mean, over when I turn seventy two, I have twenty five years ahead of me that I'm probably going to stay alive up to ninety seven years of age, and the average R and D over those that quarter century is six point six percent. It's, it's not, I mean, people sometimes, the way that they react to it, you think it's like 30%, you know? Well, it does get up to 50% if you're hundred and something years old, you know, 120 years old, but we're not gonna make it to that in all likelihood. So we're talking about a 6.6 average RMD over the first 25 years after you hit 72, um, but it's not 6.6 at the start. It phases, you know, it starts lower and moves higher. And that turns out to be a really, really slick way to
0: withdraw
1: money. Do you think um, you think people, you know, I guess we mentioned it before, but, you know, do you think people who just don't understand, you know, what, what why, the, or the benefits of taking RMDs withdrawals, or do you think it's just being told, you just think it's being told what to do, They, people might not, it's kind of shy away from that
2: um yeah i think it's an emotional reaction to being told that you have to do it and um i didn't understand the rmd i don't know 10 years ago like i should so i've studied it a lot i've i've analyzed it up and down and, and in every direction that i can think of at this point i can sort of emotionally distance myself from the rmd you know, force issue. That to me is now. Now I'm, but I'm 63. You know, I am not being forced yet. So I'm talking like I'm really brave. Um, but the mechanics of it are so beautiful in terms of it's a phased approach. Um, whereas if a person started at 6.6, 6, woo, out of the gate, that's dicey. But you get, you know, you get to a 6.6 6 average by this, this smooth you know, upward curve of the withdrawal rate. I think part of the problem is, is that for unknown reasons, the IRS, they show the RMD as a divisor as opposed to a percentage. Like nobody thinks in terms of divisors. Um, and so in the article, that's what I did is I showed the divisor and then I, I to the next column I show, Well, this divisor means translates into this percentage withdrawal rate, because if if people had in their head, this 4% rule, and a lot of people do, my students do, um, then that's kind of a benchmark. And just like, you know, a portfolio should have a 10%. So we have these benchmarks, you know, a 10% return, a 4% withdrawal rate, a 60 40 allocation, those are kind of just almost wired into us if we spend much time at all you know studying this stuff but then you go to a, um, the rmd and it's not in percentages it's in divisors and so for for obvious reasons i would prefer to express it as a percentage because that's kind of how we think and so i think part of the problem is that um people are it hasn't maybe dawned on people to actually study to really study the rmd uh, because i didn't until recently
0: and that has helped me
2: um, have some appreciation for the fact that it wasn't slapped together um the government obviously wants to tax money okay so i don't even need to say that that's pretty obvious that's why we're forced to take the money out they want us to pay tax on it and you know get a get a piece of that (laughs) wealth and and so not only are we forced but we're forced to then pay taxes on it okay you know you can you can um Swing a hatchet at that tree as long as you want, and that tree is not going to fall down. You know that's what's going to be happening. So the um and I've never published an article on this, but it's what I mentioned earlier, and that would be to use the RD as a universal withdraw methodology, no matter what the account is. And with with the one caveat is that if it's if it's a, like a Roth IRA, then you have the ability to say, yeah, I use the RMD basically, but then some years I take a year off. Well, that would be the best of all worlds. And you take a year off of the obvious years, like after 2008, or maybe after this year, by the time we're done with
1: this year. Yeah, If we could, we would. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, I did want to ask you what, uh, you know, I forgot about this question, but um, I want to ask, you, you know, you mentioned uh, the inflation crucible from 1966 through 1990. Uh, so what is the inflation crucible? And then what can we learn from this?
2: So that, yeah, that crucible, um, oh, that was something like, what was that? That was energy. That was the energy inflationary time period. And there's something like seven percent inflation um, during that time frame. Yeah, seven point three six during the '70s. Um, and think about you know we're talking the median inflation rate since 1926 was two point seven. So we basically tripled that in the '70s. And and that's why it was interesting. On some of the analysis, I went ahead and did a analysis over just that time frame, the 1966 to 1990. And um, we've been talking about this, you know, 60/40 portfolio. The 60/40 portfolio, if the RMD is governing the withdrawals, that kept pace with inflation 92% of the time during the crucible. And 94% of the time over all of the rolling 25-year periods, and there were 72 of them. And so um, that's rather comforting that if we go back and look at the worst inflationary time period, uh, quarter century, 25-year time period, what was the worst inflation that was 7.3-ish? and how did our portfolio do? Well, it did great actually, you know, 92% of the time we kept pace with the, the inflation in those bad years. Now, um, that's over a 25 year period. During um, a similar, similar period, um, 68 to 92, we kept pace with inflation about half the time. Okay, um, so there there have been that just happens to be the worst, um, and that was with a sixty forty. So you've got,
0: um, yeah, that's
2: that's sixty. So nineteen sixty six yeah actually, the worst was a couple of years later. So it's interesting inflation has sort of kind of these lag effects, and so that the the period of time with the highest inflation wasn't doesn't exactly coincide with the twenty five year period with the worst hit rate, keeping pace with inflation. Um, and and so, but if if our worst experience was roughly, we kept pace with inflation half the time. If that's our worst experience, um, I'm feeling okay about that. actually. Uh, here again, like we've talked before, so many people aren't really directly impacted by how we measure inflation. They, they're just and retirees um, just are not buying education and not buying houses, you know it's pretty easy to argue that they're not as affected by inflation as some others might be. So um, in inflation, I guess, the simplest way to maybe capture all of this is if you're worried about inflation, the RMD takes care of that for you. That to me is, has been a really valuable takeaway personally.
1: Well, I think that's all my questions and uh, I really appreciate your time uh, and chatting with me today because I'm really happy we were able to delve into your article because it's, you know, multi page with lots of tables and I had a lot of good questions to kind of delve into. So I appreciate that. You're welcome. Awesome. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Craig Israelson for making time to chat with me today about his article. As Dr. Israelson points out, understanding how to properly diversify your portfolio, utilizing RMDs to your advantage. Increasing your equities and learning how to be patient investor are all excellent ways to hedge against inflation. Also, if you're looking for more information about retirement planning as a whole, we have an online community that is available to all AAII members, where hundreds of people are discussing various topics about taking withdrawals, RMDs, retirement portfolio dis- diversification and so much more. Visit community.aaii.com to learn more and join the retirement withdrawals community. And as always, please remember to click the subscribe button if you'd like to be alerted of future I.I. shows. You can always catch a replay of tonight's event on our YouTube channel and make sure to register for upcoming AAI events and webinars by visiting aaii.com webinars. And remember, if you're an investor on the go and want to catch the I.I. show while driving or going for your daily walk, you can now follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and so many more. Lastly, members can view the latest issue of the AAII Journal by visiting AAII.com slash journal. And with that, we wish all of you viewing good health, good fortune, and a great evening. Thank you and happy investing.